This is my voice, my weapon of choice. Hello everybody, you are listening to IVS Radio, a podcast series on the migrant women experience. Brought to you by IVS, the international women's space. IVS has been a space for refugee women to come together and self-organize. We discuss, share, and exchange our stories, experiences, challenges, and struggles. We empower each other and empower ourselves to learn about and fight for our rights. Make sure to visit our website, iwspace.de, and subscribe to our podcasts. Hi, everyone. You are listening to IVS podcast on the migrant women experience. Today, we will talk about the dimensions of structural racism in Germany. We know that to understand today's structural racism, we have to look at the history of racism in Germany. Not only since the Second World War, like it usually is handled here in Germany, but way before in the German colonialism. So we will discuss the history of structural racism and then draw the connections to the present and how the structural racism is manifested in Germany today. This podcast is brought to you by IVS, the International Women's Space. We are a feminist, anti-racist group of migrant women, refugee women, and women without this experience, and with the IVS radio. We want to both shed a light on our lived experience and also on the general situation of migrant women living in Germany today. My name is Jennifer Kamau, and I am here with our guest for today's show, Natasha Kelly. Welcome. Hi, welcome. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, it's great to be here. I will shortly introduce you to the listeners who maybe don't know you yet. Natasha A. Kelly has a PhD in Communication Studies and Sociology. She is the author and editor of five books. Her first art installation, The Poison Cabinet, dealt with racism in and language and was shown at the German Historical Museum in Berlin in 2016 and 2017. Based on this idea, she developed a cabinet of curiosities during a visiting fellowship at the University of Virginia in 2019, in which her students could banish objects of everyday racism with her award-winning and internationally acclaimed documentary, Millie's Awakening, she made her film debut at the 10th Berlin Biennale. Winning the Black Laurel Film Award for Best Documentary Feature in San Francisco in 2018. Film installations and screenings followed throughout Europe, in India, Australia, Brazil, and the USA. Based on her book, Sisters and Souls, 2015, the sequential theater performance, My Sister, in commemoration of the Afro-German poetess, My Aim, was staged under her artistic direction at the How Hebel Am Ufa Theater in Berlin from 2016 to 2018. However, her directorial debate was with the theater performance of her dissertation, Afroculture, The Space Between Yesterday and Tomorrow, 2016. In three countries and in three languages in 2019 to 2020. Her forthcoming book, The Comet, is a documentary of the Afrofuturism symposium of the same name which she curated at the How 
Habela Mufa Theater in Berlin in 2018. So welcome, Natasha. We are very happy to have you in our show. Thank you. Thank you very much. I will start with our first questions. I'm sure the listeners are very much anxious to listen to this uh, show. And our first question would be, how do you see, we see that here in Germany, there is a lack of knowledge about the history of Germany when it comes to German colonialism. But as I said in the introduction, we need this knowledge to understand where we stand so we would like to know the historical dimensions of structural racism in Germany. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I think it's important um, to consider two things. First of all, it's the history of racism in Germany. That's one side of the medal. And the other side of the medal is black German history. These things are very related and they go hand in hand. Um, they can see be seen independently, but I think it's important not to look at them separately. Because um, like you also said in the introduction, um, people usually um, see the beginning of black German history after the Second World War, um, where the Allies, um, especially black US American troops came to Germany and um, the, the children from their relationships with white German women are usually considered the first generation of Afro-Germans, but they're not. Um, black German history goes hand in hand with the building of the German nation. And I would even say that um, African German history or Germany as we know it today didn't even exist in the borders it does today goes even further back. So African European history needs to be taken into consideration when we talk about racism in Germany as well. Um, that's that's the one thing. And But if we start at um, in the borders of Germany as we know them today, then we're um, already in a discussion on colonialism, as you mentioned. Uh, with Otto von Bismarck, uh, who created the German nation or built the German nation in the late 19th century. And um, the actual um, constitution of the nation itself was built on colonialism. So um, building and growing Germany as we know it today was um, only possible through colonialism, through racism through um, um, the, the, the effects of enslavement as well. This is why we cannot separate these two stories, um, these two approaches from each other. I think that's really important. And um, if we think of um, the question, what what is structural? And I think this is what um, is very misunderstood in the present debates on racism people reduce it to interpersonal communication. So for example, if somebody um, calls me the N-word or something, then that's, um, well, maybe that's not, not even considered racism because only the other day, um, the, um, a German law 
ruled um, the N-word as not race being racist. So we could even think of, uh, <laughs> have to even maybe question uh, if interpersonal ra ra racism is understood. But um, structural racism, I think, can be separated into different categories. First of all, it's like I mentioned, the interpersonal racism. So if somebody racially um, discriminates you on a personal level, um, then there's uh, institutional racism. That's racism um, in different institutions. It could be school, it can be university, and it can be the police. No, everything that's institutionalized is, uh, that's when we speak of institutional racism. Then there's also um, uh, uh, internalized racism. And that I would say is when um, black people, but also people of color really internalize racist thought patterns. And then, uh, which actually leads to um, self-destruction. Um, eventually um, yeah and there's everyday racism what we call alltagsrassismus or everyday racism that's like racism um, the effects of racism on a social level so if we um, how it affects um, living conditions working conditions get, getting a job etc so these are different dimensions of racism that's the um i think the first thing that's really important to understand that these different dimensions all together um, make up the structural um dimension or the structurality of racism then i think that it's also important to mention that there are different forms of racism so racism targets different groups you know um what we know as anti-black racism or anti-muslim racism anti-romaism against roma and um, sinti people but also anti-semitism is also a form of racism and they differ through the different histories of how racism um, affects these different groups. Um, I think what's also um, often misunderstood is that racism and discrimination are often, um, um, how do you say I'm missing some English words, sorry, <laughs> um, are, uh, are often um, swapped wrongly. So um, discrimination is like the umbrella term and there are different forms of discrimination and um, racism and the different forms of racism are a form of discrimination alongside sexism, alongside ableism, alongside adultism, alongside um, transphobia, homophobia and the list goes on. And we also have to include the intersectionalities of all of these discrimination forms. So um, that's like how they um, intertwine with each other. Right? So as a black woman, I always um, experience racism and sexism, which is not to be seen additive. So half of me experiences sexism and the other half experiences racism but it's um a, a singular form of discrimination racism and sexism which we call intersectionality so this also has to be taken into consideration and um structural racism is um 
I think what's what's important to understand also is that it's based on racist ideology. And this ideology goes all the way back or can be traced back to Christianity. You know? So I think that's really important to consider. Um, what I'm also missing in, in, the, in the debates right now are the role of the churches, the role of Christianity. Missionaries are actually the... the um, the the mode of how colonization on the continent could even take place you know through the role of the church's missionary as they say uh, the europeans brought the bible and left with the land you know so i think that this hasn't even been considered taken into consideration yet you know the role of christianity and the churches and so on which have a, a great responsibility in this debate so i'm missing their voices right now and um we actually um know that um back then the pope i don't know which number pope it was at that time but when enslavement began um the europeans actually had to get the permission from the pope because there was always slavery but but back then it was not dependent on skin color on race racial ideology and um the vatican also actually had enslaved people but um so they differentiated this is when the whole racial idea was was implemented and um the permission given by the pope actually to colonize africa and uh, on the basis of racism. So that's another important point why churches actually have, especially the Catholic Church, has a bigger role in all of this than we, we actually understand. And the structurality is, of, is that this whole um, Christian idea of black being the devil and death and uh, everything negative, whereas white is positive and pure and holy, this whole Christian fa uh, color symbolic was um, transferred to human beings, which gave, which which brought up the idea that um, dark-skinned people, if to use that term, um, need to be Christianized. They need to be culturized. You know, they need to um, they need to be brought closer to God and closer to the good uh, goodness in this whole Christian racist idea. So this is what actually legitimized um, uh, missioning Africa and going to the continent and saying, oh, we have to, these devilish people, we have to, um, you know, make them more, come closer to God, if you put it that way. Yeah? So, um, and this whole idea um, was then um, transported into different social um, societal systems, Yeah. This is how it came, institutional racism came about, for example, that it was then this, this, this um, racism was transported into universities in Europe where races as a category was created and inscribed and became the backdrop of science on top of which um, further philosophy, etc., PP, even medicine was um, was built upon. 
Yeah, even right till today, um, technical data, for example, is built on racist ideas. So the programming of computers, and I mean, I think this is really an important topic in the day and age that we're living in, because um, on the one hand, we have a digital revolution going on, but at the same time, this digital revolution is still based on racist um, parameter. Yeah. So, um, and it was inscribed into politics, for example. Uh, we have like um, the so called uh, mixed marriage laws that were implemented first in Samoa, that's in, that was a colony in the Pacific, and then later in Namibia, where um, black um, or, or white European colonizers were then forbidden to marry African women. Um, and their children, um, before this law was, was passed, the children um, were um, legitimate. That's the term that they used. And then when the, when the law was passed, they became illegitimate. So that meant that literally the, kid, the children from these um, relationships were not allowed um, German citizenship. Yeah. And um, the other way around, when a white German woman would marry an African man, um, the um, these um, the children from these relations. Well, actually, the 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 white German woman was denied was her citizenship was taken away from her. So we have a gender aspect in there as well that that um, white when white men and white women were not on an equal legal basis at the time so we're talking about like the beginning of well it's not the beginning who knows when the beginning was what we were talking about a period of the women's movement where um women white women did not have equal rights to white men i mean we still don't i mean white women don't but black women don't either but um it was a different period of time where at the beginning even white women weren't even allowed to go to africa yeah so after that kind of like opened and changed and white women started going to the colonies their actual task was teaching they went as as teachers or as nurses so it was actually the white women who um who um had the so-called erziehungsauftrag so this whole um educational um idea that was implemented in colonialism was um, put in place by the women and not by the men. So I think that this this is also um, Im important to mention. So there's a lot of details in this discussion that's actually missing. As you see, I can go on yeah. and, and on, but um, to come back to, to the whole structural idea is that uh, what we're also not allowed to forget is that um, um, re uh, colonialism and enslavement in themselves were economic systems. It was about econ economy. Yeah, it was about um, so on the one hand, where um, um, cheap labor practically was um, gained through um, through enslaved people. On the one hand, the resources that were needed were was were literally stolen from the continent. I think this is also important to connect to the Friday for Futures movement, why we are now in a, a climate change 
is the uh, is the effect of industrialization and industrialization could only happen through colonialism and through raping africa and her people so it goes on and on and on okay. <laughs> yeah it would be good if we first we understood the role of uh, germany in the history and the continuity until today of uh, if it's um, the role it germany played during colonialism that brings to the topic of the berlin conference yeah and yeah and then um, the other question would be the history of black movement in germany connected to the black women's movement mm mm-hmm. Um it's quite interesting because the I think black movements also go back to um to German colonialism. The first black movement was during colonialism, you know, when um different um Africans literally got stolen from the continent to be put in so-called human zoos as a Völkerschauen. And after the um so there were um there were there were these um this is what led a lot of of Africans to Germany or, or so-called colonial migrants at the time and um on the other hand there was um also colonial migration through because the german um um government at the time needed um especially translators you know um and um language teachers so this is also what brought a lot of africans to germany but um to fulfill the colonial cause you know at that time but after the first world war when um germany lost their colonies um under the versailles of, uh, the treaty of versailles um this this led to um where we can actually see political action coming from these people who lived these um african migrants living in germany at the time they would write different petitions they would write um um there was also a a black um magazine different black magazines actually at that time already but i think what is missing and this is a problem that we have today as well um because we have so many gaps we have so many knowledge gaps in um questions of what did the women do at that time what did black women do at that time this is actually research that i'm doing now for my new book <laughs> to mention it at, at this point because i don't think that there weren't any black women who were active i think that we just don't know yeah you know? we don't know what was the role of black women at that time we know that white women and white men were not not equal so where did black women stand in society this is a question that um i'm really looking at trying to trace black women movements right back to the beginning of um of the germination practically uh-huh. so sorry i can't answer your question right now in more detail <laughs> but um this actually shows how um how racist ideologies also in um show their effect in the um institu- on an institutional level when it comes to academia because there are so many knowledge gaps there are no there is no anti-racist research 
um, independent research. There is no black studies research, independent black studies research. As academics, we always have to log on to something else. Yeah, either gender studies or ethnology or whatever um, um, disciplines they have. But this is something that is really desperately needed so that we can work independently and fill these knowledge gaps. Yeah, so this is, this is a form of epistemic violence because what we know about the colonies, what we know about black German history is um, usually from a, uh, a white perspective. You know? And I think that there's a lot of work that definitely needs to be done. Thank you very much. Uh, maybe touch something small on the Berlin conference mm -hmm. and the effect it had during colonization. Yeah, the Berlin Conference was, um, well, to go back a step to what, to understand why the Berlin Conference even took place, I think that's that also goes hand in hand with nation building because um, Germany used to be all these little duchies and du duchesses and, you know, all these little feudal states. And in order to combine these states... Um, um, which was um, the, the states were actually chosen by language. So language also plays an important role in this as well. So whoever spoke German in these little um, areas were um, were whoever spoke German in these in these areas um, were allowed, if you want to put it in a sorry for my English, but were allowed to become part of the nation defined on based on language. Yeah. So. Um, um, whilst Otto von Bismarck, the first chancellor, was busy trying to um, bring these states together, maybe he didn't really realize that now he became part of Europe. So this is also something else what we have to take into consideration when European um, politics come in. That um, colonialism was a European project. It was not necessarily only a German project. It was a European project. Yeah, And I think Europe, or the European Union, is doing nothing right now apart from closing borders. Yeah? So I think this is um, also an important point. But to get to the Berlin Conference is that he was concentrated, first of all, on inner politics and strengthening the nation. But then realizing that he was now in the middle of Europe, he had to compete. No, and I'm not justifying what he did. I'm just saying, showing you the process of how this happened. So he had to compete with the UK, with France and other imperialist states that were already in Africa and different parts of the world colonizing the people. You know? So um, he um, he called the in the, the Berlin Congo conference, which took place here in Berlin. And invited all European states, the leaders of all European states, including the USA and the Osmanic Empire at the time. So today's Turkey was also at the table. And it was literally a game of monopoly, if you so will. Whoever brought enough money to the table were able to buy mountains, seas, islands, land, um, whatever was for sale so to say you know and um there were also like for example countries like poland was also at the conference but poland didn't have enough money that's why poland didn't um have any colonies of its own but as a european country profited 
from col colonialism anyway. So I think that um, we often hear that uh, because Germany wasn't involved so long or because certain European countries didn't have colonies that they um, can take themselves out of the responsibility, but they can't because everybody in Europe profited from colonialism. So during this conference, it was uh, the so-called scramble for Africa took place here in Berlin, not far from here, actually. And um, where um, the, the people li literally or the European states literally divided the African continent among themselves, you know, and became uh, colonial rulers of these different territories. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is very powerful. Now we will make a short break and listen to a song that you chose, Natasha. Yeah. And we would like to hear, <laughs> it is called Nuki, Perspective, Perspectiven Zalen. Would you like to say? Perspectiven yeah. Nuki, yeah. Nuki, during the, um, um, the whole George Floyd movement, a lot of music has come out um, from um, from different musicians and artists and I saw her on Facebook and I fell in love with this song and I've been stalking her ever since I'm her number one fan so shout out to Nuki at yeah. this point and thank you for this song <laughs> Die Flüchtlinge als Parasit, die du ihn am liebsten 
Bumps yes. this song. Mm. I see why you <laughs> fell in love with her. It's yeah. powerful. Yeah, very. Yes. Mm. Okay, we are back and we just listened to Nuki, Perspektiven Zählen. And it's it's a good song. Mm-hmm. In the first part of the show, you spoke about the historical dimensions of structural racism in Germany. Looking at the present, how the structural racism manifests itself today we have to talk about the structural racism of the whole asylum system, including the laws and, of course, the German border politics. We know you since the time of the school, so we would like to ask you to explain first what your role in the school was and what was your impression of the Gerd Hauptmann occupation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was... Um well, to tell you the truth, I don't like looking back at that time. Um, it was really emotional. And when I think of that time, I always have to think of Millie, uh, Mimi, Sister Mimi, um, uh, who for me became really a symbol of that phase of the movement. And um, at that time, I was um, the representative of the European Union in the Integrationsbeirat, also the Landesbeirat für Integration und Migration, 
I don't even know if that is translatable into English, to tell you the truth. But it's like an organ of the Berlin Senate where um, different migrants are elected to represent the different groups of migrants in the city. Um, and for to be elected, you have to be born in this area. And because I was born in London, I um, became the representative of the European Union. And because um, asylum politics is European politics, that's what we're not allowed to forget. It's on a European level or not on a national level. It um, we um, I just um, claimed my 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 vote during that time it wasn't that the politicians asked me to do anything it was no wait a minute i've been elected and it's uh it was a um ehrenamt so it was um a non-profit organized um um function and um i um tried to claim space literally for um refugee voices um that's how it how it literally started i think that uh, that i used this position that i had at the time um to um enable um refugees um to 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 speak to be heard that would i think that was that was more my my overall role maybe the general i was i was a messenger so as they say don't shoot the messenger yeah and what was difficult at that time because uh, nobody was allowed inside the Gerhard Hauptmannschule. So um, it, it literally started um, when they were standing on the roof. I remember that day where, I mean, it shut down Berlin and Kreuzberg. I, I remember that. It was, um, there was so much, I've seldom seen so much police on the streets. Everything was shut down. You couldn't get through Kreuzberg at all at that time. And um, the refugees living in the Gerhard Hauptmannschule, or some of them, were standing on the roof because the house was supposed to be evicted. And they were protesting that they wanted to stay. And they um, said that if, the, you know, if they were fighting for their rights, I mean, you know this better than me because you were on that roof too, <laughs> you girl. <laughs> and um, I, so I can only say from, from my perspective, standing on the ground practically and trying to do what I could in my position to help. Um, so um, they, they, yeah, you wanted to, to, to jump off the roof. And I was like, hell, nobody's jumping today. <laughs> Not on my watch anyway. So... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm. I did. I did lots of different things. I remember um, on the phone, being on the phone with some of you who were on the roof and trying to formulate your um, your demands uh, while you were on the roof. Just um, writing everything down, what you wanted, what you needed, what um, what it was, and then we um, this way managed to formulate a letter that got sent to the Senate. Um, uh, a lot went wrong, let's put it that way, because a lot was promised that literally wasn't held from the side of the politicians. Um, I remember that. Um, I, I can't even hardly remember. Maybe you remember better than me how it actually calmed down um, the situation. But after it did, I was one of very few people who were allowed in the school due to this man mandate that I had. 
Uh, so I was um, like in and out of the school. I was uh, supporting different people in the school, be it uh, going to doctors, um, going to the optician. I remember one who, who couldn't see without his glasses. His glasses broke, getting new glasses for him, going to the optician, going to doctors, um, all sorts of um, different social um, things that I did on 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 that level. Um, uh, going to different EMTA, um, what do you say, office offices, doing different paperwork and all the signing. And we know that Germany loves their paperwork. And uh, I mean, I have a doctor title. I I sometimes don't even know what the hell they want in this paperwork sometimes. So somebody who doesn't even speak German, I don't even know how they're going to understand it sometimes. Yeah. So I supported doing all of that. And um, I uh, negotiated. I remember having meetings with uh, Mr. Panoff, who was still alive at that time. He passed in the meantime as well. Sitting at the table, trying to uh, negotiate um, different things and different demands. That at, at that time, um, I think one of the prior demands was also to to create like a refugee center, social center out of the Gerhard Hauptmann School. That never happened. And um, then, um, yeah, yeah, when um, I remember when 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 Mimi died, um, I don't know, that literally that took the last bit of energy out of me. I remember when we um, the night we heard that the school was supposed to be raided by the police. Um, I remember being on the phone all night trying to figure out, yeah, because Mimi was already really sick, and uh, we would we were trying to figure out how to get her out, how to get her out of that school when we heard that they were going to raid the school, and um, finally got her out. I'm not going to say too much information about how that happened, but we got her out and took her to a friend's um, where she literally passed that night, and um, if we hadn't she would have died in the hands of the police so um i remember organizing her um i'm oh, sorry organizing her um oh yeah organizing her burial when we went to um because the last thing I had to promise her is that um, she was not to be buried in Germany. She wanted to go back to Kenya. And I had to promise her this. So, yeah, we um, organized her burial and um, raised money, raised funds to... Um, and actually, yeah. Oh, sorry, this is... Uh, yeah, that was a difficult moment, and it was actually the first time we worked together one on one with uh, with Natasha because we, I was in contact with the family in Kenya, and she was the uh, she had the power of attorney because of the language and the, the bureaucracy of 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 the system, and it was a difficult moment. It was a very uh, difficult moment. The whole process was difficult i can yeah. i i understand the feeling <laughs> yeah and it um yeah well we managed to raise the funds anyway and um get the um 
enough money and had her body transported back because she wanted to be buried next to her grandfather. And that's where she is today. And I remember the family giving us the cow and saying that that cow's um, waiting there for us. It's getting old, this cow. We need to go go back and um, celebrate and slaughter this cow, which they left for us. So, yeah. And that's practically how my part ended in this whole system, in this in that fight because uh, I I don't know after Millie died I was um, now that M- Mimi it, it 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 broke me I was like no this is like this is way too much no and I pulled myself out of the movement and um I mean it's how many years ago and it still affects me emotionally so yeah. Yes, that's the part uh, that was most difficult in the school. And then Angela Davis came to Mm -hmm. the school. Do you remember when she came and said the refugee movement was a movement of the 21st century? We will shortly play the audio that we filmed when Angela Davis was here in Berlin. And we walked together to the school together. And then maybe you can... uh, um, Bring in your perspective on this, uh, from this audio. So, first of all, thank you so much for telling us about your experiences here and about the the struggle around um, uh, the school here. We know that the demands were to create a community center, a cultural center that would be available to uh, refugees. And of course, uh, the the demands of the refugee movement are far vaster because human beings deserve to be treated as human beings. All human beings deserve jobs and housing and, and health care. So I want you to know that we are with you in your struggle, that we will take this information back to the United States and encourage people to support you as you move forward. As I was saying in the other meeting, the refugee movement is the movement of the 21st century. It's the movement that's challenging the effects of global capitalism. It's the movement that is calling for civil rights for all human beings. So thank you very much and good luck with your struggle. How do you see this? I totally agree with um, Angela Davis. I wasn't there at that time when she was here. Um, I had already taken myself out of the movement at that time. Um, But listening to this um, now, I can definitely say that um, there is there is so many layers of truth to what she says. I think um, especially refugees are um, the most vulnerable or one of the most vulnerable groups of our society um because um and i'm not a refugee i need to say that as well to check my privileges as well because i have presently talking to you two european passports actually so um speaking from a perspective of a black woman who was born in europe grew up in german born in london grew up in germany and presently actually has two passports i um i think that uh, there is um like a different um 
um, there are different types of human beings, yeah, that um, those who count and those who don't. And um, this is definitely tied to citizenship, um, uh, to um, who has a say and who doesn't, who has access and who doesn't. Um, this is um, strongly tied to um, the ex existing power structures that have, um, which is a continuity of um, colonialism. And um, I think we're witnessing this um, as we speak. Um, we have over 10,000 people in Greece being maltreated, um, dehumanized, and who do not have access to human rights. So this is the level of where we should actually be having this debate. What's happening right now is that we're discussing human rights. And this is, I think, where I can definitely relate to what Angela Davis is saying, because in the 21st century, we should not be discussing who, who has access to human rights and who doesn't. But this is um, actually why what what's happening right now. And people are coming over here from from the continent, from all different areas of the continent, but also from Zuria and Iran and those areas, and um, um, especially um, following the food that has been stolen from them. Yeah, to to put it literally, if you if you steal somebody's food, then people get hungry. Then they're gonna follow the food. Yeah. And so I think that um, Europe is definitely doing a miserable job. I don't. I don't even know how the words to 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 emphasize what the hell is going on in politics concerning that right now is um is is literally crazy that they're sitting in their different cabinets and discussing discussing who has access to human rights and who doesn't because it comes down to that yeah and um yeah we have to do better we will make another short break and listen to the song we are one by international embassy and it was released in the time of the Oplatz movement which was done also as a as a uh, as a collective process and Habet Ogba Michael is one of them and is still active on many platforms to present Do you really know how it feels to flee from your country seeking for security Do you really Isolation. Hey, come a little. 
resist and fight against this racist laws they made to divide us. Cause we are one, we are one, we are one. It doesn't matter where we are coming from. Cause we are one, we are one, we are one. It doesn't matter where you are coming from. Cause we are one, we are one, we are one. It doesn't matter where we are coming from. It's interesting how goods are able to find their way in Europe with a lot of ease, but not the people. And I found myself uh, always having this uh, this mentality that white people have that Africans, Africa is poor. And that's why we are moving here without reflecting on all the resources coming from Africa. And I keep saying Africa is not poor. It's the absence of money. And who decides the medium of exchange is money? And that's where the power is. And um, as we come back to our program, it is also clear that history is repeating itself. What point are we in in history considering the history of Afrofuturism? Yeah, this is um, relates to my new book that just was just published, um, Afrofuturism 2.0. And I think that the times we're in right now, we have a pandemic going on, a worldwide pandemic going on, which um, has opened our eyes to power structures. It, it functions like a prisma or a lens to see how Western societies malfunction, who's standing on which side, uh, who's on the power side, who's on the privileged side, and who's on the other side. 
and um after the 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 death of George Floyd is for me was just a chain reaction of this pandemic where um through showing this video but not only of George Floyd but also of Amy Cooper so can we please not forget about her as well is why people are now literally exploding while they're on the streets because racism both sides of racism have become medial have become visible uh, racism there's two sides to the medal there's uh, racist oppression and there's white supremacy and these two things they function together as well and this is what we got shown through these two videos and this is actually where uh, why people took to the streets under the hashtag of Black Lives Matter. Um, yeah, fighting not for all lives, but for black lives as the most vulnerable lives on this planet. And this is exactly where history repeats itself, because 100 years ago, after the last pandemic, which got known as the Spanish flu, although it had nothing to do with Spain, yeah, it um, broke out in the USA through um, uh, soldiers who were serving in the First World War. And um, it was the first global, well, it wasn't the first, but it was the, the last uh, global pandemic where people were forced to wear masks, like we're forced to wear masks today. And then um, during this p period, the so-called Red Summer broke out. And that's where uh, in the USA also black people um, took to the streets to fight against white racist terror, which uh, also became visible through the last pandemic. So it wasn't caused by the pandemic. And I think this is important to differentiate, but it became visible through the pandemic. Exactly like today, things are not caused through Corona, but they become visible through Corona. Inequalities become visible, deprivileges become visible, access, non-access becomes visible, power becomes visible. And um, the book that I, 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 I just published um, relates to this in um, because during the last pandemic, W.E.B. Du Bois, who actually is my academic hero, if there is somebody who would be an academic hero, then it's definitely him. Um, he um, he was one of the first Afrofuturist pioneers. And Afrofuturism is like a, a genre. It's like a, a literature, art genre. And I think the 2.0 movement has now also moved into politics, philosophy. So it's 2.0 movement because it's literally been broadened. It's not only the arts and entertainment where people like to see black people, but also gone into the intellectual philosophies, etc., and he was one of the pioneers of this movement anyway. And his short story, The Comet, was written during the last pandemic, yeah, where a comet drops on, on New York, new, um, demolishes New York, and the last survivor is a black man named Jim because he was sent down into the vault of the bank to get some documents. And when he comes back, New York is just gone. It's literally the comet has destroyed New York. So he goes to look for for to see if there are other survivors and finds a white woman. No, her name's not Amy, but it's Julia. Um, <laughs> sorry, but I like cracking this joke at this point because it literally um, shows how history does repeat itself on all levels, on gender levels as well. 
so at the at the beginning, Julia is because um, we're speaking about the nineteen twenties now, where we um, have like literal racial segregation in the U.S. Right, so. Um, we have um, this white woman who doesn't want to talk to the only last survivor because he's black. Now, and then when she realizes, okay, she doesn't have an, a, a chance, she doesn't have a chance without him, they, they come closer to each other and then start looking for other survivors. Yeah, So she starts trusting in his humanity, which becomes part of the story's topic. It's a short story that he wrote, right? So we're back to the idea of Christianity and the role that Christianity plays in all of this as well. And then they go searching together for further survivors and they find uh, her white fiancé and her white father who are ready to kill Jim. as this black man. How can he be touching this white woman? And then she um, intervenes and says, no, no, no. It's, he helped me. He helped me survive. And it's because of him that I'm here. And so um, they let him go. And there's this white mob, this crowd of white people who are ready to ready to kill him. And then bef behind the crowd comes his wife, his um, black wife, holding the dead baby. And then they are reunited. And that's how the story ends. So for me, this whole story is like really a repetition of what's happening right now. And so many, although it's only a, a short story, it's a repetition of what is actually well put into like a literary context of what's happening right now with um, another pandemic with white racist terror still going on. Um, nothing has literally changed. And what he actually shows through this story is that um, nothing um, from above can change the situation only we ourselves as human beings we are we need to act we need to change and as long as this doesn't happen nothing will change and this has been going on for the past hundred years nothing has changed the next pandemic so we're kind of like stuck in a loop and as long as we don't change our attitudes our mindsets our actions we're not going to um get rid of racism because there's nothing going to fall from above that's going to change things for us you know it just manifested or strengthened and constituted the whole ide racist ideology even more since the last pandemic than it did get less and i think this might be the message of the story um why it came literally because actually it was a symposium that i did two years ago and at that time, there was no pandemic. So that wasn't even the idea behind the, the, this whole symposium that I did. I wanted to reintroduce um, Afrofuturism and W.E.B. Du Bois to the German context because W.E.B. Du Bois was a black philosopher, educator, activist, journalist. I don't know what he was not. And he actually studied in Berlin. So the most important phases of his life where he was co coining his most important anti-racist ideas, he was living here in Berlin. And this is what fascinated me about him so much. Yeah? And he wanted to stay on and continue in, in studying in Germany, but he didn't get the funding. Yeah? So we can only you know, imagine why. There's no proof, but I expect a black man from the United States wanting to do a PhD during German colonialism was not going to happen, of course. So he went back and became the first um, absolvent of Harvard University and uh, first black um, um, absolvent of Harvard University. And he's well known and what he did in Germany is well known, but nobody knows this here.
Yeah. And this is what I wanted to reintroduce. And I wanted to reintroduce Afrofuturism, the second wave of Afrofuturism, where we, we, we can, on the one hand, use Afrofuturism as a lens also to see how history is repeating itself, through the example that I've just given, but also at the same time use it as a methodology to create futures. Yeah. What is um, at the moment, you know, when we're out in the streets, when we're demonstrating, it's quite clear what people are demonstrating against. Yeah. But what are we actually demonstrating for? What does this racist free society look like? And this is um, actually an invitation. Afrofuturism is an invitation to free yourself from Eurocentric colonial imaginations and to construct ideas of what the future what a black future might look like yeah um will we have social justice in the future is intersectional justice the future will we even need an understanding of justice in the future or what has it become reality yeah what does a racist free society look like and i think that it's important that we create um ideas um and visions for them to be able to manifest yeah because we are literally the living vision of our ancestors. They fought to be free. We haven't reached this full freedom, but we've become more free throughout the centuries. And it was because they, for them, freedom was a vision. For them, freedom was utopia. For them, they didn't know what this freedom might look like, what becoming human for an enslaved person would look like yeah and we're living this vision today and a lot of us i think are not really aware of this and i think we owe it to them to create new visions and we owe it to our children and children's children to create new visions of where life where this world is really literally going yeah and that's why for me afrofuturism allows or offers a basis to do this on especially in an academic context as well it's nothing utopian anymore we literally have a foundation on which we can work um and create visions that no longer are just you know in tv uh black panther or science fiction but then become real philosophical ideas yeah yeah, that's a very good perspective that you put it in that I can almost visualize the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We will now listen to the song Las Maltauschen. Las Maltauschen, yeah. From Jeff. And maybe you can say why you like this song. Yeah, this song struck me as well during the the, the peak of, of the Black Lives Matter movement a few months back because... Um, he spoke um, in this song, it's just my, it's my experience, it's my life. It's my uh, growing up as a black uh, woman in Germany, going to school here, um, right up to university and my PhD. Um, it, was, um, it was a lonely life um, as well. No, especially not not only in school because I grew up in a, in in a small village in North Germany, so we were the only black family in 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 that village, and right up to studying in Münster, uh, doing a PhD, um, I come I'm I'm part of a generation who were the first to make it 
to to do first of a first migrant generation let's put it that way um black migrant generation to make it into university on this level so it was always very i was always very isolated it was always very lonely and um this song just it just spoke out of my heart as well because i just totally felt where he was coming from so thank you jeff at this point as well <laughs> Wir sind hier geboren, doch irgendwie nicht ganz willkommen. Wir sind hier geboren, doch irgendwie nicht ganz willkommen. Was weißt du, was weißt du, was weißt du davon? Was weißt du, was weißt du, was weißt du davon? Schon im Kindergarten hab ich es gecheckt. Egal wo wir auch waren, dieser Blick. Was weißt du, was weißt du, was weißt du davon? Was weißt du, was weißt du, was weißt du davon? Lass uns mal tauschen. Ich verschaff dir einen Einblick, als Kind schon als Nigger bezeichnet, von Rassismus schon immer begleitet, in der Schule von vielen beneidet. Nur weil man der Schnellste war, oder weil Mama Afrika mich mit Farbe gesegnet hat, ja, ja. Das Melanin, natürlich ist Kreatin, doch es macht uns zu Enemies, denn ihr fürchtet die Energie. Ich will Frieden, ich will kein Beef. Meine Leute, sie wollen keinen Krieg. Wir wollen Ruhe, ein dickes Peace Von dem Kuchen, den wir verdienen, gib her Meine Lehrer waren alle samt Pisser, ich schwöre zu Gott Die Regierung sind alle nur Schisser, doch sie spielen Gott Sie verstecken den Teil der Geschichte, als wir oben waren Anstattdessen bestehen sie uns weiter, doch wir greifen an Wir sind hier geboren, doch irgendwie nicht ganz willkommen Wir sind hier geboren, doch irgendwie nicht ganz willkommen was weißt du, was weißt du, was weißt du davon? Was weißt du, was weißt du, was weißt du davon? Schon im Kindergarten hab ich es gecheckt. Egal wo wir auch waren, dieser Blick. Was weißt du, was weißt du, was weißt du davon? Was weißt du, was weißt du, was weißt du davon? Frag nicht so dumm, ob ich Deutsch kann. In die Schublade pass ich nicht rein, Mann. Die Sprache beherrsche ich wahrscheinlich noch besser als Wähler der Alternative. Was bleibt uns als Alternative? Intrigieren für Mindestlohn. Doch viel größer ist die Vision. Wir steigen zurück auf den goldenen Thron. Die Medienpräsenz, alles Klischee-Existenz. Oder zeig mir einen Film, den du kennst, wo ein Bruder als Hauptrolle glänzt. Immer wieder den Flüchtling spielen, deshalb könnt ihr nicht akzeptieren. Wir sind mehr als gebrochenes Deutschmann, wir sind hier geboren, also sind wir das Volk. Meine Lehrer waren alle samt Pisser, ich schwöre zu Gott. Die Regierung sind alle nur Schisser, doch sie spielen Gott. Sie verstecken den Teil der Geschichte, als wir oben waren. Anstattdessen bestehen sie uns weiter, doch wir greifen an. Wir sind hier geboren, doch irgendwie nicht ganz willkommen. 
Was weißt du, was weißt du, was weißt du davon? Was weißt du, was weißt du, was weißt du davon? Schon im Kindergarten hab ich es gecheckt. Egal wo wir auch waren, dieser Blick. Was weißt du, was weißt du, was weißt du davon? Was weißt du, was weißt du, was weißt du davon? Mm. Um, I think the second wave of the black German movement started in the feminist movement. So I always argue uh, if you're a serious part of this movement, you have to be feminist. You know? There is no way that you can seriously fight against racism and not against sexism. And it doesn't matter which gender you are, you know. Because if it wasn't for those women back in the 80s, I think the movement definitely wouldn't be where it is now. And I think that uh, this is something that everybody needs to understand who becomes part of this movement. That this movement is inseparable from women's movements. You know? And I think it's a lot different in other European countries, in France or in England or wherever that especially black women have to fight for a space in these movements. And, um, and I'm not saying that there is no sexism going on in the German movement, black movement, but there definitely is. But I think that um, we have to recognize that this movement is inseparable from the feminist movement. When Audre Lorde came in the 80s and reignited the movement, it was women who started it. It was women around Maya Yim, Katarina Oguntoye and a lot of others who who were the motor of this movement when Adifra was created, um the ISD was created to to organizations that are still active today. So I think um um feminism or feminist theory or um feminist practice has always been um, an important tool that's been used during this movement, if people are aware of it or not. You know? um, leading literally to the fact that we are fighting for intersectional justice to this day is a result of this movement. How we've moved forward in not looking at things separately, but looking at uh, how things intersect, how um, how injustices within the movement um, play out, how um, um, we on the one side might be deprivileged, but on in other cases are are very privileged. The example just now I gave you with um, being born in Europe um, is nothing I chose, but this all automatically gives me certain privileges. Yeah. 
um and so i'm i'm whereas i'm as a black woman affected by certain power structures when it comes to citizenship rights rights i'm still privileged and i think that this understanding is definitely something that grew out of feminist awareness and black feminist awareness especially yeah so um yeah um that's that's what i would say so far i mean I think seriously, if people um, don't understand intersectionality, then they need to go back to the drawing board because this is where the movement is right now. Uh, they need to go back and do their homework. I think this is what's happening in the past weeks that, uh, you know, a lot of hobby activists uh, um, are intruding. I would literally say intruding at some point. I think it's uh, really important that um, it, it's never too late to start. Um, to become part of the movement, to be, um, it's never too late to be anti-racist or to be feminist. But I think um, what is um, sometimes uh, interrupting the work that people like you, like me and others have been doing like for decades is when um, people who are just starting out um, are literally become experts of they don't even know... Um, they don't even know what what the hell they're talking about sometimes. And this literally takes us back decades where I'm sometimes like, excuse me, but we had these discussions a long time ago and the results are on the table. Go back, read the books and then become part of the debate where we are because they're literally hindering us from doing our work at, at certain points. And when it comes um, to white people, especially in the feminist movement, I think that we have... We've moved slowly forward, yes. I, uh, I have to think, it's, it's funny, because I remember when I published my last book on black feminism last, uh, last year, it came out, where I literally traced the idea of intersectionality in this book. Yeah? It was, um, I wasn't expecting this book to be so successful, because for me it was like obvious that intersectional feminism is black feminism it's for me it's the same thing and um intersectionality which is literally a tool and the strategy of black feminists was um was literally stolen and run away with or they tried to run away with it black white women with these tools yeah and um it was literally having to through this publication a form of reclaiming took place where I think that um, the b debate has shifted, not only through this book, but also through um, people like um, Dr. Emilia Roig and the Center for Intersectional Justice. It's like amazing work, what they're doing there to really implement intersectionality into politics and society. So this whole shift has been taking place in the past one or two, three years, um, which is changing the women's movement as well. And... Um, I think that um, what what disturbs me is a lot about the debate is that people only look very one sidedly that um, that that racism only has to do 
do with um, people getting um, sensitive or for um, or becoming aware of their own role as white people in in the context of uh, of racism. This is certainly something that's important and that needs to happen. That needs to happen on an individual level that everybody has to start understanding uh, how racism affects their life for better or worse. Yeah, because white people, they gain privileges through racism. And I think a lot of people were not aware about this, but it's not about all lives. Yeah, so that they can do in their free time at home, wherever that is supposed to take place. And please not in politics. And this is where things are going wrong, because this whole white sensibility thing is taking place in politics. And I think that's not the place for it. Politics should be about black issues, about um it should be about black issues. It should be about black lives. And that's what I'm missing. And I have a feeling that this debate is getting stuck in this white corner because uh, white people are like so con- so involved with their own emotions and everything that racism, they all of a sudden realize that they're part of the problem. And that's it's like a dead end. So so politics are like going in that direction, too. But um I can only say get over it and let's get back to business, what it's actually about, namely black lives, black demands and uh, how to literally include um, black subjectivity into German politics. Yeah. And we haven't made that step yet. I'm missing that step. I'm missing that um, that step in in both in the women's movement, which I think maybe is even a step ahead of um, general politics in that concern, but which was a, a long way that they went. If we look at uh, Audrey Lord, who actually was the first black woman maybe to 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 criticize white feminism back in the 80s and we've come to a certain point through the whole intersectionality debate where people are now on this white women are now understanding their role in this politics has to keep going in that direction and i have a feeling that we're they're kind of like stuck everybody's so sensitive about who then she's offending me nah, nah, nah. and they're not seeing um racism uh through the structural lens that it needs to be taken into consideration if you want to do politics it can only be on a on a structural level and not on an individual level that will take us nowhere and that's kind of where we're drifting away from what this whole thing actually should be about right now Um. yeah and i think we relate a lot to that and we have our critique on the white feminism and that's why in the process of uh, trying to form alliances with different migrant groups we started to organize our own demonstrations for for the 8th of march the international women's day and the 25th of november because Initially, we did that this works together because these days are international. But we realized in the process of doing our demonstrations together, then we got lost in the midst of the of the white uh, feminism. And we were not able to articulate our demands, which are quite different. Exactly. And I think that's the whole point. The problem is that uh, the category woman, yeah, which is also a constructed, socially constructed category, is um, considered very um, homogeneous. Yeah, so any demands coming from the the women's movement are white women's demands and always have been. Yeah, um, they're demanding equal pay. 
I can not demand equal pay if I don't have equal access to work. Yeah. So our demands all really come from a different place, from a different space, from a different position in society. And I think what white women especially have to understand, and then the general public, is that there is no such thing as the woman or the woman's demand. Women's demand are um, diverse demands. Yeah. And this diversity needs to be taken into into perspective. Yeah. Like Nuki said, perspectives count. Yeah? So um, and if we then um, I think that the women's movement have a strength also. And this is maybe where allyship comes in. If we manage to continue these debates that have been going on for the past 20, 30 years, well, more than 30, 40 years now in Germany, and um, are able to stand shoulder on shoulder as women with different demands, then maybe the general public can learn how multi-perspectivity works as well. Um, so in, th in this sense, I think that the women's movement on, a, on many levels offers strength through the processes that we've already been through, but we still have a lot of work to do. That's the point. And that's yes. where intersectionality... <laughs> I am not excusing anybody. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> this ain't over till it's over, everybody. Yeah. Huh? yeah. And, and that's why intersectionality really yes. comes in. It's key. It's the key. Yes. That's good. Now we, we are kind of coming to a closing, but we have to listen to this song by Celine Bostic that you again yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, chose. Would you like to say something brief about the song and why you like it? Yeah. Yeah, well, this, this song spoke to me as well. Um, I can only share Celine, shout out to Celine at this point as well. I can only sh share her words, Nivira Liza, I will never be silent again. And I think this is something, a motto for me that on, didn't even only start in the George Floyd movement, um, but has always been my motto. I think uh, people who know me, I'm a big mouth and a troublemaker. So this <laughs> this song speaks really from my soul, literally. And I think that it's a it's a brilliant message to not allow the discussions that are going on to die down. We have to keep moving the movement forward. Yes. Bum, bum, bum. Schau in den Spiegel und will jemand anders sein. Ich bin ein braves Kind, warum bin ich ganz allein? Ich bin doch so klein, warum falle ich trotzdem auf? Ich fühle mich so, so unwohl in meiner Haut. Falsche Freunde, Freunde, die nichts verstehen. Ich lach bei Witzen mit, die auf meine Kosten gehen. Senke den Blick, schlucke die Tränen. Ich war, ich war so lange leise. Ich war. 
Küsse mir auf die Zunge, obwohl mir noch schreien ist. Ich war so lange leise, aber ich bleib es nicht. Jetzt sag ich, was ich fühle, weil ich weiß, dass ich muss. Sing mir den Kloß aus dem Hals, werf mir den Stein von der Brust. Schau in den Spiegel, was ich sehe, ist wunderschön. Ich weiß, warum ich schreibe. Für wen kann ich nicht schützen? Ich kann euch bloß zeigen, wir haben eine Stimme, wir müssen nicht schweigen. Wir waren, waren so lange leise, wir waren so lange leise, waren so lange wir waren, waren so lange leise, wir waren so lange leise. Wir sind nie wieder, nie wieder leise. Wir sind nie wieder leise. Wir sind nie wieder, nie wieder leise. Wir sind nie wieder leise. Yes, I agree. Nie wieder leiser. Now we yeah, at the end of our program. Thank you so much, Dr. Natasha Kelly. It was uh, an honor to have you in this podcast. I wish we had more time. <laughs> your opinions, your knowledge, your experience of work is amazing. Thank you. And we are very proud of you. Thank you. <laughs> to order Natasha's book, please visit her website natashaakelly.com and on the 27th of September 2020 there will be the Black Berlin Biennale Black Womanhood presents the Comet Afrofuturism 2.0 Natasha A. Kelly. It happens at Galerie Kule at Augustusstrasse 10 from 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. Do not miss this event. We are broadcasting from We Are Born Free Empowerment Radio and it's on 88.4 in Berlin and on 90.7 in Potsdam. You can listen to We Are Born Free Empowerment Radio every Friday and Saturday from 1 to 4 p.m. and on Sundays from 1 to 5 p.m. Make sure to visit our website iwspace.de and subscribe to our news- newsletter and podcast. Check also the links and materials connected to the pop topic of this program and also complete transcript and translated version to German will be available as soon as possible on uh, our website. Thank you so much for being with us through this program. Thank you too. Thank, Thank you. you for having me. 
You've been listening to EBS Radio. We are broadcasting from We Are Born Free, Powerman Radio in Berlin. EBS Radio is a podcast series on the migrant women experience brought to you by EBS, the international women's space. We are a feminist, anti-racist group of migrant women, refugee women, and women without this experience. EBS Radio is a continuation of our work documenting the lives and stories of refugee and migrant women living in Germany. Visit our website, iwspace.de, to find out more about our work and subscribe to our newsletter. A complete transcript and a German translation of today's episode will also be available there soon.